Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we begin our meditations this day, would you please pray with me the words of a hymn familiar to a good share of us, I am sure. Hopefully, the words lead us in these precious moments. Jesus, we will ponder now on your holy passion. With your spirit, us and thou, for such meditation. Grant that we, in love and faith, may the image cherish of your suffering, pain, and death, that we may not perish. In Jesus' name, amen. The text, the first word of Jesus from the cross. When there he said, as the cross was now upright and placed, and all stepped back and gazed upon him, and the words that came from his mouth were first and foremost, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's amazing, isn't it? The scene there around the crucifixion, the hubbub and all the, the, the fear, the pain, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and the family and his disciples and others who were there. And one would think the first words as this cross is upright and the nails are holding him to the cross, that it might even be a prayer, something along the lines of, oh Lord, help me to endure May I endure this to your honor and glory or something or another that would point upon himself. But he doesn't do that. The first words out of his mouth are a love, a care, and a concern even for those who are crucifying him. Father, forgive them. It was obviously lost on many of them. Perhaps even the disciples and those who loved him didn't understand fully what was going on and thought maybe this was the end. What's further amazing about that scene of Jesus on the cross, the first reading that we just completed from Isaiah 53, that's called the Suffering Servant chapter, looking ahead, 700 years before this moment. You know, we just celebrated the 175th anniversary of, of St. Lawrence. You multiply that times four. That far back, 700 years before. You know how the 53rd chapter of Isaiah ends? It ends with these words, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The power of the word. God's prophecy being fulfilled through Jesus Christ from the mouth of Isaiah that was many years before. And his first word is for the transgressors. If the greater, the greatest thing of forgiveness for the transgressors is what Jesus is accomplishing, and he is, and that's the first point. The forgiveness is being completed by our Lord as he suffers and dies. A forgiveness that is full and complete 
that you and I might find peace and joy through that forgiveness. He's not praying for a forgiveness for them that says, Heavenly Father, uh, push this aside. It, it doesn't matter what they're doing. Don't hold them accountable. His prayer, his intercession is one that would bring them forgiveness through repentance, confession, and absolution. The justification that provides forgiveness for us completed by Jesus through his death and his resurrection is that which brings us absolution for our sin. And his prayer would continue for all people down through the ages that this full forgiveness that is there for all would be that which blesses them as they would receive it. Forgiveness is complete. No reason to add anything to justify any sins that we have committed. No reason to say, well, I did do this and I'm sorry, but no need for justifying ourselves. That's God's business. And through Christ's death and his love, forgiveness is complete for us. And secondly, that forgiveness is caught by faith. And you and I in our faith approach the cross this day and in remembrance. It reminds me, yesterday was opening day, I believe, for the Tigers. And if you can imagine any one of us sitting in the outfield and some powerful slugger hits a home run and it bounces a couple times and unbeknownst to us, all of a sudden, drops in our hands. We didn't do a thing to accomplish that. It would be almost silly to say we had a part in it, but we have received it. And what's one of the first things that happens when one receives like a ball like that at a major league game? They hold it up. And everybody kind of cheers and they kind of like to show it. Well, you might be about three jumps ahead of me. What I'm saying is through faith in our crucified and risen Lord, we catch his forgiveness for all our sins. And we have the wonderful opportunity then as we would see the completeness of our forgiveness for Jesus' sake and that we have caught it, that we are then privileged, and here comes the third C, carrying it into everyday life. We've been through this pandemic thing, and much has been said about carrying the virus. And that some may not even have any symptoms, right? But that they may be carriers, and so be careful. And that's why we wear masks to protect the other and, and ourselves as well. And that gives carrying and a concern for not being a carrier of that virus a negative slant, right? It's not something that makes us feel good. As a matter of fact, it makes us on edge and perhaps to be careful. Well, the good news is there is a wonderful way to look at carrying. That what we have received in this forgiveness that Jesus won for us and brings us, 
that we then carry that with us into all of the aspects of our life. And as we carry that forgiveness attitude and pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Oh Lord, may that happen in our lives because in this world that seems to prize divisiveness and contentiousness and pushbackness and every other thing you can come up with to describe that, so needs forgiven people in the midst of it carrying forgiveness into the situations of life. I came across one way to check myself. Might be a good way to check our, if you will, forgiveness attitude that we carry into life. And that is if you mistakenly step on somebody's foot. It's probably happened to a good share of us one time or another. Some people, the first words out of their mouth might be, watch where you step. Other people's first words out of their mouth might be, I'm sorry, did it hurt? And it seems to me that there's the attitude of blaming another, finding fault with another, watch where you step, that we unwittingly can carry into interactions and situations at home, at work, in school, or wherever we are. Or there can be the first thought of, I'm sorry. Understanding that we are loved and forgiven through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so may it be, dear sisters and brothers in Christ on this Good Friday, that as you and I go gazing upon the cross of Christ, realizing forgiveness complete that we have been privileged to catch and further privilege may carry into every aspect of our life. May God bless us in our journey beyond the cross into his eternal home. I pray that in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. And now may God's peace, which passes understanding, guide and guard our hearts and minds. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The people stood by and watched. The Jewish religious leaders sneered at him and mocked. A criminal hanging on the cross to his side railed at him. Everyone called out to him, demanding that he step down from that cross, that he come down and prove to them once and for all that he really is the Holy Son of God. They wanted him to pull off one last miracle, to try and save himself from this horrible execution. Doing this would certainly vindicate himself from all the charges they put against him, they thought. If he could save others, why did he not save himself? At this moment, at the foot of the cross, everyone now sees Jesus as who he really is. They see him for what he's all about. A king who is betrayed, beaten, and nailed to a cross. The son of man sentenced to death. Within their words of mockery, the thief, the religious leaders, 
and the Gentile soldiers all unknowingly and ironically confess Jesus as who he is. The king of the Jews. A savior. The Christ of God, his chosen one. Yet these words were not shouts of praise. These were not words of faith that they shouted to Jesus. They uttered Jesus' name with hate-filled lips, twisting his name into a mockery of God himself. But Jesus, nailed to the cross, suffering and dying, does not speak a single word of rebuke. He lets the world gather around him and curse him and hate him. He does not give in to the temptation of the devil, which he experienced earlier in his ministry, to save and serve himself. Rather, he continues to silently bear the weight of sin and shame for everyone gathered around him who are hating him. For the people who have proudly and publicly declared themselves as God's enemy. For all people of all time, of all places, Jesus did this. The only thing they saw was a religious fanatic being punished for claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah, not hearing a single word of defense from his mouth, from his silent mouth. And their eyes and their ears did not deceive them. This is who God is. But the eyes of faith see something more hanging on that cross. The ears of faith hear the name King of the Jews and Savior in a profoundly different way. Like the ears and the, and the eyes of the other thief that beheld everything before him. The eyes of this condemned thief witnessed the glory of God in humble appearance, gasping, heaving, and drawing labored breath. His eyes could see that this man, Jesus Christ, was innocent. His eyes could see that this king being crucified was more than a man. How this thief could see this cannot happen by human reason or strength. For he had the eyes of faith. He had the eyes that can believe even though that they don't see the full picture. By the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, this thief, this condemned criminal, knew that he was next to God. He was bleeding, suffering, and dying alongside the Messiah, God himself. He hung there next to Jesus as a guilty man, a man suffering due punishment for his crimes against Rome. But the thief in this moment at the cross saw Jesus as who he really is, his savior, his king, his only hope and salvation. With what little strength he had, this condemned and doomed criminal looks over to the other thief who had joined the crowds in mocking and hating Jesus and reminds him of who they really are. Crooked, sinful, and evildoers being punished for the crimes that they committed. Men who deserved to be sentenced to death in the manner in which they were. After this rebuke, this thief looks to Jesus and makes one simple request. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
He did not ask Jesus for a miracle. He did not ask Jesus to save him from his own cross. He simply requested that his Lord remember him in his kingdom. Breaking his silence, his holy silence, Jesus looks to this thief, this thief who has repented, and says to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. This is the second word that Jesus had spoken from the cross. A word of mercy, an act of grace. The thief now received something far greater than what he asked of the Lord. Eternal life and pardon. After seeing his Lord suffering and dying, this thief looks into his own heart. This thief looks into the situation he's in. He looks at the world that he was born into. And he realizes just who he really is himself. A lost and condemned sinner. One who could only be saved by the gracious work of Jesus Christ. All because God allowed himself to be seen in this way as a condemned man. All because of the work and grace of God alone through the Holy Spirit. It is not known how many other people heard the thief say these words. And it's not known how many other people heard Jesus speak this second word from the cross. But there was undoubtedly a lot of noise and commotion going on as people hurled insults at Jesus and made demands of him. How true it is, though, that the world has continued in this same chaotic and noisy manner. The sinful flesh cries out to God, asking him to come down from his throne in heaven to fix everything right now and prove himself once and for all. The world has heard the story of the crucifixion and sees a man who did not live up to expectations. Yet, even on this day, many centuries later since the Good First Friday, uh, since the first Good Friday, Jesus remembers the deep and horrible sadness and pain that he felt as he suffered for his people, as he suffered for his enemies. And he speaks still today these words of grace. Jesus speaks his life-giving word to us, even as we face our due punishment. In faith, we ask the Lord to remember us, but he gives us something much more. By the grace of God and through his word, we encounter Jesus at the cross as condemned criminals ourselves. And then we confess who we truly are. And then we confess who God truly is. Our ears have heard the good news, the same promise that we will be with him in paradise. And we believe. This word gives us hope in our dying breaths. This word gives us the eyes to see and the ears to hear Jesus in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the craziness of this world that continues to go about its way in resisting Jesus. And he gives us the strength to make the simple request to Jesus that he would remember us when he returns in glory. Though we were once enemies of God, this same promise of being with Jesus, being joined with Jesus in paradise, is given to each and every one of us. And like it was for this penitent thief, salvation is ours today. Salvation and everlasting life is ours today. On this dark day, in the dark days of our life, 
May we find peace and strength in knowing that we have been given the eyes to see Jesus as our king and the ears to hear his name with gladness. Amen. Woman, behold your son. And then to look to the disciple and said, behold your mom. I've often wondered why God inspired John to write this set of scriptures for us. What was he teaching? What is God teaching us in this scripture? What does he want us to know? What is he showing us on this Good Friday? What I do know is that whenever God wants to get our attention in the scriptures, he'll often use a phrase like this, behold, and then draw attention to what it was that he wants us to look at. So, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, signaling very on in Jesus' earthly ministry what he was going to be accomplishing for us. He was going to be the sacrificial Lamb, the one that would, once for all, pay the penalty for all sin, for your sin and for my sin. Again, in Revelation, he says it like this, Behold, I am making all things new. That work started with Jesus going to the cross, making all things new. Later in the scripture, it says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. You see, apart from Jesus, there is still a penalty to pray for sin. But Jesus, for all that would believe, that he would be the one that take away the sin for the world, there's peace. Jesus also says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In this exchange on the cross, because he's looking down at his mother, he's looking down at a disciple whom he truly loves. It's an intimate exchange between these three. But in this intimate exchange with his dying breaths, he's showing care and concern and compassion. But I'd also like to draw your attention to what else is taking place in this scene. Above his heads are the words, the king of the Jews. So while he's having this intimate moment with three, the world is mocking him. People are wagging their tongues at him, deriding him, the scriptures say. And yet... What's happening is that people are saying, save yourself if you truly are the Messiah, the king who's taking his throne, is showing that he is in complete control and complete power. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. Strange kingdom indeed, because... You and I are used to kingdoms being established by force. That's not the way God works. His kingdom is a kingdom of grace. So here at the foot of the cross, Jesus is creating a community. He's ushering his kingdom once more, but he's creating a community, a family. As he's transferring care for one another from mother to son and son to, to mother, disciple to mother. He's creating that new family and I invite you today to look at each other. And do you realize God has you here for a reason? He has you, Christian, you, believer, here to be family to one another. Because 
after this scene on the cross, when Jesus is laid in a tomb, he only reveals himself to those who believe. The dividing wall is already being established. Do you believe or what do you do with Jesus on the cross, his crucifixion, his resurrection? There is judgment coming for those that do not believe. But for you and I that do believe, we're to be family. Care for one another. Be concerned for one another. People sitting around you today are the ones that God calls your brothers and your sisters. He's called you out of a world, out of your family of flesh into this family. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens heirs in God's household. You've been built upon the foundation of the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. God's word himself. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. You're a child of God. And that because of what Jesus has done and that because of you being welcomed into the kingdom through the waters of baptism, that faith that's working in your heart. You're a child of God. And just as Jesus created a new relationship between Mary, his mother, and John, the disciple, he's creating a relationship between you and I as well. And we're to love each other and to take care of each other as family. We are to be more important to one another than anyone else. Those in your family of flesh that aren't Christians, we pray. We pray that they do come to faith because there will be a time when we will be separated forever if they don't have that faith. He who does the will of my father, Jesus says, is my mother and my brother and my sister. What is the will of God? The salvation of our souls. That's why he came. His will is that you would believe that he paid for your sins, that he brought you back from sin, death, and hell. You see, he remembered his mother and the disciple that he loved. He took a moment for them, not out of need, but out of an opportunity to show them care and concern and comfort because they were already grieving. He does the same for you and for me. His love is focused not on him, but on him, the people that he came for. His focus is on us, his children. His grace, that forgiveness that he purchased and won for us on the cross already and also through his resurrection. You believe that Jesus meets all your needs? Those words that he utters from the cross, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He's showing you that he meets all of our needs. He's cared about all of them. That word from the cross brings us comfort and confidence. That word from the cross shows us Jesus is our king and our Lord who's concerned about his subjects, his subjects, his people. This word teaches us how we might also live as we care for one another. He spoke to his mother. Woman, behold your son. He spoke to the disciple. Behold your mother. Those words are meant to be comforting for us as well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's really quite remarkable when you think about it. 
Jesus in the, in the midst of everything he's going through, the intense agony, the utter exhaustion, speaks such powerful words. Words that to a great job of summing up, in most respects anyway, everything we need to know about him. I especially like the progression with his first statements from the cross. His first three focused not at all on himself, but only on others. And the fourth one now focuses on Jesus, but what he had to do in order to make happen what he proclaimed with those first three. So what he wants for people is, is that our sins are forgiven so that we can enjoy eternal paradise in heaven with him. And he also wants for his people to be cared for while we are on this earth. But all of that comes at a cost. Not to us, but to Jesus. His words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Testify to the incredibly high price that Jesus had to pay. Not that you or I will ever begin to understand the, the full extent of that cost. Because we've never experienced anything like it. Oh sure, we've all felt alone. Maybe even abandoned. We've all known fear and, and pain, but not nearly to the extent that our Lord endured those things. None of us has endured what Jesus was going through when he cried out in despair, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be forsaken of God is to be abandoned by him. To be cast out of his presence. To be where he is not. And there's only one place in all of creation where God is not found. That place is hell. That's the price Jesus paid. That's what he was willing to suffer in order to forgive our sins so that he could promise us paradise. On the cross, Jesus endured the full consequences for our sin, the physical and spiritual penalty for sin. Well, the physical consequence of, of disobedience is physical death. God had explained that very clearly to Adam and Eve shortly after he created them, when he told them that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Out of love for Adam and Eve and, and for all who would follow them, God had tried to warn them of the dire consequences of, of being disobedient to his will. They disobeyed anyway. And the moment they did, God kept his word. 
and they began to die physically. But more than one kind of death entered the world with that first sin. Another consequence of their action was spiritual death, and that they experienced immediately and fully right away. Physical death took a little longer. It began with the first sin, but it didn't fully happen until many years later. But spiritual death instantly and completely. And how that affected Adam and Eve is, is seen very clearly in, in their actions right afterwards. When they hid from God. They hid from the only one who would be able to save them from their actions. Instead of running to him for forgiveness, they ran from him out of fear. That's because they were now spiritually dead. And they no longer knew him as they once did. Which is what they've passed on to us. And what we have, have passed on to our children we all die physically because of their sin and ours. And we all are born dead spiritually for the same reason. Physical death. Spiritual death. That's what Jesus was suffering on the cross. As he faced there the fierce wrath of his father. That's what he endured for us. We will never have to know what he went through because he rescued us from it. But no one rescued him. The angels would have had he called on them. His father would have had he asked him. But if he had done that, we would be lost forever. And so he kept silent. On that good Friday... He did not ask to be rescued from his horrible fate. But he couldn't help but cry out in the words of the psalmist, Why? Why have you forsaken me? Of course, Jesus knew the answer. And so do we. God forsook his own son so he would not have to forsake us. The Father extracted from Jesus the, the full penalty for our sin. The penalty that, that you and I could never have endured. Jesus experienced the pain of hell because he was the only one who could do so and live again. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the, the deepest insight into the love of Christ he suffered hell for us that's why we so fervently thank and, and so unashamedly praise our Lord he suffered hell for us thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord Amen Jesus says, I thirst. He's closing in on the final moments of his death. He's been hanging there for about six hours. And he says, I thirst.
Again, why? Why does he say that phrase right now? What is he showing us here? What is he telling us? What does he want us to know and what does he want us to remember? I thirst. Surely he had to be thirsty before this, but why is he speaking now? I mean, think of all that he'd been through just in the last 20 hours that led up to this point. Arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, passed between Pontius Pilate, King Herod, and back to Pilate, and then handed over for crucifixion. Roman soldiers having their fun, slapping him around, mocking him, pushing a crown of thorns into his head, shedding his back with a whip, forcing him to carry a heavy beam up a mountain to his own death. They let him hang there in that hot Middle Eastern sun. Not once in those hours of torture did they give him anything to even moisten his lips. No wonder he was thirsty. All the loss that he was going through, the loss of blood, the exposure, the heat, the exhaustion, and yeah, even probably dehydration. Sweat rolls off buckets until you're absolutely dehydrated. Crowds taunting him, bugs probably flying around. It's not a fun and pleasant scene. I can't even begin to imagine. I can't take it all in. I mentioned dehydration a little while ago. You know what happens when we get dehydrated, right? At first, we get a fever and that throbbingness in our throats. Our abdomen starts to cramp up, nausea sets in, and then even our eyes start to feel real dry. Your tongue gets really swollen and thick, and your throat feels like sandpaper. Your vocal cords start to swell up, and then in the end, you can barely even whisper, so I thirst wasn't a loud cry. Jesus is on the cross. God himself is suffering. He's the one that became our substitute to bear our torment, to go through the things that I had just described on our behalf. And as we heard a little while ago when Pastor Brandt was talking about, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He's also suffering spiritually. Deprived of the presence of his father, those words that were spoken just before this, I thirst. It's at that point where he's experiencing that absolute torment. We have a word for it. We call it hell. It's not a light and momentary thing. We get a little description of that in the scriptures. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man dies in an unrepentant condition and finds himself in Hades. Being in torment, he lifts his eyes up, sees Abraham far off at Lazarus' side. He calls out, Father Abraham, have, have mercy on me. Send, send Lazarus just to dip the end of his finger in water, just to cool my tongue. You see, just one drop, just for a moment of relief. Just one drop for the anguish that he was going through. That's why Jesus cries out, I thirst. 
He's saying that he's in anguish, experiencing the fires of hell, literally on that cross. I thirst is important. It's important for you and I to hear that. And the timing is important as well. Because this is what Jesus is doing. He is showing that he is still in control of his execution. He knows when to speak, to enrage the people, to cry out to crucify, to see him hang. He knows when to keep silent, because if he would speak at that point, he would be rescued from this. So he knows when to speak and when to keep silent. In his weakness, he's still showing that he's strong. He knows why he's here. He knows what he came to earth to do. And he's enduring it on our behalf. That agony and that shame, that scorn. He's doing it for you and he's doing it for me. I thirst. The moment of his death is at hand and, and yes, he is asking for something here. He is asking for a drink. He wants that sour wine. He wants it for his rallying cry to muster that last little bit of strength to proclaim what he came to do. What does it mean for you and for me? It means that Jesus took our place in hell. We, we deserved hell. We deserved it. And yet Jesus made sure we wouldn't go there. We deserved it because of our sin, and yet he became the substitutionary atonement for us. He paid that penalty in full. He suffered it in full, physically and spiritually for us. He did it for all. He did it for you. He did it for me. He thirsted on that cross so that you and I would never thirst for God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, please bless your word wherever it is proclaimed throughout the world this Good Friday. May it be a word of pardon and peace to convert those who have not yet come to saving faith in your Son, and to confirm those who already know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. May your word pass from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, and from the lip to the life, that as you have promised, your word may achieve the purpose for which you send it, repentance and forgiveness and faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. It is in his name that we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. The thing that we call sin that we so tragically minimize in our lives strips us from the grandeur and the goodness for which we were originally created. Sin brings indignity to our essence and pain to our experience. As we've been reminded this afternoon, sin also separates us from God, our Heavenly Father. Poet and preacher E.H. Chapin has rightly said that the worst effect is of sin is not in just the pain and suffering that it brings, but instead, the discrowned faculties, the unworthy loves, 
the low ideals and the brutalized and enslaved spirits that we sometimes possess, even as God's people. First, the discrowned faculties note that even with all the brilliance and creative genius with which we were created as God's people and which we are capable of as his children, our pursuits in this life are often undermined because we give in to our basic carnal instincts. Second, the unworthy loves, which are practices that we ought to despise, become at times so enticing that we throw caution to the wind and often discount the potential consequences of our behaviors pursuing these loves. Third, the low ideals that often occupy hearts and minds as we struggle with setting our minds and hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Setting our hearts and minds on that which is pure, that which is lovely, that which is right, that which is pure, that which is honorable. And fourth and finally, the enslaved and brutalized spirit. Either as a victim to those who have whom we have allowed to have power over us or self-inflicted through our choice of a comfortable lifestyle. We choose victimhood and ignorance, blissful ignorance, over and above the forgiveness and freedom that our Lord offers us in Christ. We choose blissful ignorance and we choose victimhood over magnifying the majesty and the mystery of our Lord. On the way to the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world suffered the ultimate indignity, endured the ultimate penalty, and experienced the ultimate pain, being stripped and displayed naked for all the world to see. Having been already brutally beaten and whipped severely, and then hung, the Son of God himself hung and left for dead on an instrument of pain and punishment. Jesus allowed this indignity and endured this pain so that sin would no longer have mastery over you or me. Jesus allowed this indignity and endured this pain so that we would not have to incur the penalty that we deserved because of our selfish and sinful actions. Jesus accomplished this for us because he was the only one who could. Jesus was the substitutionary sacrifice that was necessary to pay the blood penalty for our sins, demanded because of the holiness, righteousness, and perfection of our Lord. But because of our inherited sin and our willful disobedience against the word and will of God, we needed that sacrifice, we needed that substitute, and Jesus was the only one who could accomplish that to satisfy God the Father's demands and to take our place instead. Jesus accomplished this for us on the cross so that we would no longer have to be separated from God, our Heavenly Father, but instead we could be in his presence forevermore. And as Luther describes, serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Jesus accomplished this for us and took the punishment of the cross 
so that we could be forgiven and set free, and so that we could pursue the things of God. On the cross, Jesus demonstrated his perfect obedience to the will of his heavenly Father to seek and to save all who were lost. And it's on the cross that Jesus also demonstrated his sacrificial love for you and for me. That's why Jesus is the only one who could rightly say, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be, that God's own son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. And yet I know that this is true. He came to this poor world below and wept and toiled and mourned and died only because he loved us so. I cannot tell how he could love a child so weak and full of sin. His love must be most wonderful if he could die my love to win. I sometimes think about the cross and close my eyes and try to see the cruel nail, the crown of thorns, and Jesus crucified for me. But even if I could see him still, it would but be a little part of that great love which like a fire is always burning in his heart. How wonderful it is to see my love for him so faint, so poor, but yet more wonderful to know his love for me so free, so sure. And yet I want to love you, Lord. Please teach me how to grow in grace that I may love you more and more until I see you face to face. Friends, we will see Jesus face to face because of his word from the cross. It is finished. And all God's people said, amen. Our gracious Father in heaven, as we near the conclusion of our Traori service this afternoon, we give you thanks for your love which prompted you to give us your son as a sacrifice for our sin. We thank you for Jesus' passion. We thank you for his endurance those six hours on Friday and those three hours on the cross. Lord, we submit ourselves to you and we ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us as we once again receive the power and promises that come to us by way of your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross for us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This seventh word of Jesus from the cross, this particular one from the Gospel of Luke, is directed toward the Lord's heavenly Father, a prayer to him. Recalling the expression from King David in Psalm 31.5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. You are my faithful God. Two aspects of this statement that are profound are the timing of Jesus' passing on the cross and the relationship of Jesus with his heavenly Father. Recall the timing of Jesus' birth noted by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive full rights as his children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of 
his son, into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. So we are no longer slaves to sin, but instead, children of God. And since we are God's children, we are also heirs. The timing of Jesus to come into the world in order to be our Savior was just right from God's eternal perspective. Also, recall from the Gospels, Jesus time and time again with his disciples and followers, sometimes with his opponents, and certainly with demons that he's exorcised, Jesus is often silencing them or saying to them, don't share this with anyone. Quiet, be still. My time has not yet come. Jesus controlling the timing of his proclamation of who he is as the true son of God and the savior of the world. The timing is just right for Jesus to go to the cross according to his heavenly father's plan. Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father is also important to know. Revealed throughout the gospels, especially in the gospel of John, we read several passages that denote the kind of relationship that Jesus had with his heavenly father. First from John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And a little later, this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. And we have been witness to his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Next, at the feast of the dedication, Jesus remarked, I and the Father are one. And then again, later on, during the Last Supper, Jesus asks his disciples, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his work. And later, in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus states, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And then in his prayer for his followers, as Jesus calls for the unity of his people, Christ prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. There is divine unity between Jesus Christ, the Son, and God, the Heavenly Father. Just as Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth, Jesus, in giving up his spirit, is now returning to his Heavenly Father to testify to the truth. That is, to fulfill the law of the Old Testament and also to fulfill the prophecies concerning the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Not only that, but Jesus is also displaying his grace for the people whom he created who could not save themselves from their sins. And now, near the end, the time has almost come. Jesus, to fulfill his heavenly Father's will and to save us from our sins, shifts his words into another prayer to his heavenly Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At the appointed time, Jesus hands over his spirit and entrusts his life into his heavenly Father's care. 
and my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of faith here at St. Lawrence. Because of Jesus, you can do the same. You can entrust your life and you can entrust your time into your heavenly Father's care as well. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.